I want to just read a screenshot. I will leave the names off, of course. This year I felt overwhelmed. This is a screenshot from a private Facebook group uh-huh. of a woman trying to keep the Passover, okay? This year I felt overwhelmed. We decided to keep Pesach at the house this year. We used one of my male goats my husband slaughtered, but after we killed the goat, everything went south. Blood went everywhere. My husband got a headache. He went to bed. I ended up cooking it by myself, running back and forth between kids and cooking. This Passover was the hardest. I didn't feel my heart was in the right place. I have never been as upset and angry as I have this Passover. Not just that, drained emotionally and physically. My animal was wasted. I cried my eyes out. I even cursed. I feel like I should give up, like I'm a failure. I let my creator down. I couldn't even go through one night of trials and overcome it. I wanted to have a special Passover with my family. Ended up being like a big regret and a burden on me. And then it goes on, and it's they're trying, and they are placing a burden upon themselves that no one no one can, can mm. reach. And they're taking... The enemy is taking something that's supposed to point us toward Christ, and they're forgetting to look at Christ instead of the picture. They're just getting so focused on what's the picture that's supposed to point to Christ that they're forgetting the point of mm-hmm. his resurrection. And, you know, without that hope this year, you know, we lost our child. I don't know if you know that. Mm. A few months ago, our fourth child actually passed away. And Easter Sunday was amazing. The whole point is resurrection. Mm. Jesus raised from the dead, so glory is just sleeping. And that this woman didn't have that Mm -hmm. because she was trying to keep the law is dangerous. It's so dangerous. Right. Well, that's amazing. Now, you might watch that and think, well, who, who are they describing? What's the woman she read out the Facebook post of? Who, who would you say that is? Not, not the name, but what background? What, what are they? As it turns out, it's a Christian uh, who's been led astray and been sucked in by something called the Hebrew Roots Movement uh, that's come through the internet, through COVID and so on, saying that Christians are bound to the feasts of the Old Testament and, and to the, the way you dress and the food laws and so on. And so it's a Christian who's saying, well, I've let God down. I, I, I failed him. It's just the worst, this Passover, which is uh, what we would call Easter. Bad theology hurts people. Uh, that's the tagline of uh, that show, Cultish. Uh, it's one of my favourite shows. Uh, I listen to the podcast version of it. Uh, but they interview people who have come out of cults uh, and become Christians. Uh, and as they tell their stories, it's the same over and over again. The bad theology always hurts people, whether they're coming out of the, some of the classic modern cults like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology, or they're coming out of other religions like Islam or Hinduism, or they're coming out of the New Age with its never-ending search for the divine self. Bad theology always hurts people, and you can see it, right? That's, and she's a Christian who's been sucked in by bad theology, and it's destroying her life. She says, I've got a burden, you know, it's a burden that I can't bear. Now, tomorrow... 
Who knows what tomorrow is? Hey? I thought you'd all say Halloween, right? <laughs> uh, yes, it's Halloween. Uh, but it's also, as Aaron, who's studied the church calendar, knows, Reformation Day. October 31st is Reformation Day. It's the, the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle demanding answers essentially making the same charge but 500 and so years ago that bad theology hurts people, which is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church of the age were doing. They were bringing bad theology and it was hurting people. And from that one piece of paper on the door of the castle inviting debate, a movement sprang up recapturing gospel truths that had been buried for centuries, covered over and denied by an ever-growing mountain of bad theology which was really hurting people. Poor people were being robbed of their last dollars because they were being told by wandering evangelists from the Roman Catholic Church that you could buy forgiveness for your sins with cold hard cash. And so you want to get out of purgatory quicker, you want your relatives safe, give us your money now, right? Or they'll be burning for longer. Uh, there was a system of penance in place which demanded harsh treatment of the body and repetitive prayers to make it up to God. Uh, the Pope and the priests had become mediators between God and people and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross back 2,000 years ago was said to not be enough. You had to earn your way by religious works and moral works. And so the church by that time had become just another cult destroying people's lives. Now, it hadn't started out that way, but that's what it had become. And someone had to stand up and say, no, that teaching's wrong. It's leading people astray. In fact, it's leading them to hell because it's denying the gospel of Christ. Well, as we come to our passage today, we discover that the Reformation wasn't the first time that the mainstream church had been led astray and that people were being hurt by bad theology. In fact, they were being hurt by exactly the same bad theology that that woman suffering, that Martin Luther was complaining about, that all the cults have. Uh, and just like in 1517, again, it took one man to stand up and say no, even to his closest friends and to the most senior church officials because he could see where it was all heading down a long, dark path to hell. Now, we're working through Galatians, and last week we saw how Paul described how he'd been saved out of that kind of religion himself, by Jesus' grace. And that's why he had such a good nose for it, that he could sniff the stench of sulphur from a mile off. He could smell the same religion he'd been saved out of, coming back into the church. And he caught a whiff of it, in Galatia. And so this letter is a warning to them, to the churches up in where modern day Turkey is, to a plea to nip it in the bud now before it's too late. And he's going to show them from personal experience just how damaging that kind of teaching is, just how much hurt that kind of bad theology brings. And so as we hit chapter 2, he's describing events 14 years after he'd met Jesus himself and discovered God's incredible liberating grace. Because something happened at that time 14 years later that uh, 
was going to shake the very core of the church and it was the same thing that's now happening over in Galatia. False teachers have manipulated believers into believing a false gospel. And it wasn't uh, in some fringe area, it wasn't uh, down in outback Texas, like you know, a Waco commune like David Koresh. It wasn't in a walled commune in the deep jungle of Columbia like Jim Jones uh, and the People's Temple. It was happening right at the centre of Christianity, where it had all sprung from. It was happening to the church in Jerusalem, HQ. Something was up there and Paul had gone to check it out. And so Galatians 2 verse 1 uh, page 1031, I think it was, if you want to follow along. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognised as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. Now that last bit might sound a bit like Paul was having second thoughts about what he was preaching himself, that he was having doubts about the gospel. Uh, but that's not what's going on. He went, he says, because of a revelation from God, uh, that something was off and he wanted to check that the church in Jerusalem was still on track with Jesus. Uh, we heard from that other reading in Acts what had triggered it, how certain people had come from Jerusalem, from HQ, up to Antioch, up towards Turkey, uh, where, which was Paul's home church. And they'd started saying that unless you are circumcised as a Jew, then you can't be saved. Yeah, you believed in Jesus, that's fantastic, terrific, you need him, but you've just got to have this little operation. Yeah, what's a couple of days of pain to get into heaven? Uh, you'll be right as rain. Uh, you can ask David, he's had a different kind of surgery in that area recently uh, and uh, you know, he's okay now after a few days of ice packs. <laughs> and uh, even though it might seem like such a small thing, no pun intended, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. But if these guys have come from head office, are they just a few bad apples or has the whole tree gone bad? I guess that's the question Paul wants to find out. Because if it's coming from the apostles themselves, the ones who'd followed Jesus, who he had appointed and sent and were leaders, and they've changed their minds about the gospel, then the whole foundation's cracked and the whole thing's coming down. And, and that's why he's worried that he's been running in vain because just watched the church disintegrate behind him. And so it's no accident that Paul takes Titus along with him and Barnabas to check out HQ. Why Titus? Who's he? Well, Titus is a Greek who turned to Christ. He had no Jewish backgrounds, no connections, and at no point had he ever been circumcised according to the Old Testament Jewish laws. But he trusted Jesus when he heard about him and Paul considered him just as legitimate a brother in Christ as anyone else. And so Titus is exhibit A. And will they try and force him to have the snip? And it doesn't look very promising when they arrive. Verse 3, but not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers 
had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So straight away, it's obvious from the moment that they arrive in Jerusalem that, that there's, there's this pretty strong movement. Whoever these guys are, they have clout uh, and they're able to put pressure on Paul and Titus, a lot of pressure, right? They're trying to compel Titus to have the surgery. Just think how easy it must have been, it would have been to just give in and to get Titus to go lie down and take one for the team. I mean, what's it really matter anyway? Right? It's just a piece of skin. What, what's a couple of days in pain with an ice pack for the sake of peace and, and people thinking, well, you might even get in good with people of power. Right? What's a little inconvenience for the sake of the unity of the church? But they refused. And verse 5 explains why. We did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for you Gentiles in Galatia that I'm writing to. They took their stand for one reason and one reason only, because to give in would be to destroy the whole gospel. That's astonishing, isn't it? That if Titus had had this surgery, there'd be no gospel, there'd be no good news. Now, he's going to explain why that's the case in just a little bit down in verses 15 and 16, which we'll get to soon. But, but that is what's at stake, right? The gospel, the, the whole foundation of the church. Eternity's on the line and he's not going to hold back. I mean, look how he describes these guys. He calls them false brothers. They are spies come to undermine the freedom we have in Christ. They are people out to enslave Christians by their lies, Bad theology hurts people and in this case it ruins their eternal relationship with God. Right? So it's not a small thing. But were they acting alone? Were they just a powerful faction or, or was this stuff coming from the top? Paul's not assuming anything and he's not going to die wondering. Right? And so he calls a meeting with the top brass, he gets Peter to, uh, who Jesus has left in charge of the whole church, also He's known as Cephas, uh, and he gets, which is a Greek version of the same name. Uh, he gets called both of them in the passage. Uh, he gets John, who was the disciple that uh, Jesus was closest to. And he gets James, who's Jesus' own brother, right? Because Mary had other children, unlike what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, right? And, and what did he discover when he got these three together? Verse 6. Now, from those recognised as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's for the non-Jews, just as Peter was for the circumcised, that is for the Jews. Since this one at work in Peter for an apostleship to be circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those recognised as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship uh, to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I'd made every effort to do. And so, what a relief. 
Uh, this, this, this teaching wasn't coming from the apostles themselves. They, they're all on exactly the same page as Paul. Same message about Jesus. Same salvation through the cross. Same gospel of grace. And so it was the unity that, that Paul had longed for but wasn't sure was going to be there when he got there. And so he had not run in vain. And I reckon we should thank God for that day. Because... I mean, of all the days in history, we don't celebrate that one. Uh, but it shows that the gospel that we hold on to is God's gospel. And it's not about religious observance. It's not about rituals. The same gospel saves Jews and, and it saves Gentiles. God's got one way to save everybody. But we can also thank God for that day because it shows us the kind of courage it takes to stand up and be counted and that you should stand up and be counted if you see the group being led astray. If you, if you see that kind of teaching coming in St Barnabas, you've got to stand up and say something. Right? It's not a nail, nail your own document to the door. <laughs> All right, let's have a discussion. Uh, and it also shows us how vulnerable, I think, Christians are, churches are, how vulnerable denominations are, that even the mainstream head church can go down, right? So no connection to history saves you, and no you know, connection back to the apostles and apostolic succession, right? Um, don't trust a preacher because of their credentials. We've said that a couple of times already as we've gone through Galatians. Always test everything you hear by the word of God. That's why you should have your Bible open at the passage, where you should take notes, and why you should read them over again in a few days' time and say, is that what Galatians was talking about? And so we mustn't rely on having a strong history or connection to the past or this unbroken connection to the apostles as if any of those things guarantee the truth. No, we have to keep going back to first principles and use the tools that we've been given by God to recognise when God's gospel is under attack from within. But it's never blatant, is it? It's never in your face. That would just be too easy to spot. Oh, yeah, it's always Jesus plus something else. And that, that's what the Galatians are being warned about. It's always Jesus plus something. Right? In this case, circumcision. Right? In that lady's case, feasts. The way you dress, whatever it might happen to be. You know, agreeing with a certain leader, whatever the rule might happen to be. Oh yeah, we love Jesus, he's great, but you need this other thing. And it's just such an easy thing to be sucked into. It's so subtle and it's appealing and it often comes by influence of clever people which is exactly what happened next. It might have been a good day that day in Jerusalem, a day to thank God for, but it was soon led to a showdown in Antioch. Paul tells us what happened. Uh, he and Titus, they went back home, back to their home church in Antioch, uh, up in uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, and they invited Peter to come with them and check out this Gentile church, see what it's like that all these people have come to Christ without all these religious observances and Peter arrives and and for a while it's, it's all happy he knows 
that these people are genuine Christian brothers and sisters and he's happy to go to all the church picnics and eat all the, the ham that's been put out for them and uh, he starts getting into bacon and eggs and he's visiting their homes uh, even though they weren't Jews before they became Christians. Now he's not always been willing to do that. You might recall God had to work that out of him, had to kick it out of him in fact back in Acts chapter 10 because the Jewish law in the Old Testament forbids Jews to eat with non-Jews. And Peter was a Jew before he was a Christian and he, he was still kind of going, well, should I, shouldn't I, I don't think it's right. Uh, and God had to kick it out of him. In fact, God had shown him a vision of the, the blanket with unclean animals on it and told to go and eat and, and basically he was saying, Peter, a new era has begun. Now that Jesus has come, it's time to let all those ceremonial laws go. Jesus has fulfilled them. And so he's loving the fellowship of this Gentile church. I bet he's loving the food too. Uh, he's at every dinner party. All of a sudden, he's, he's trying prawns. He's never been allowed to eat them before, right? He, now he's getting into the oysters. and Oh, man, this is good stuff with, with all these people who are great friends and who dress different to him, and, right? Because and, he knows the gospel's changed everything. But then something happened and he stopped. Abrupt halt. Let's read it again. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. Remember, James is one of those other church leaders. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. I'm not sure how much of a party that is, but anyway. And so these Judaizers, as they're called elsewhere in the New Testament, this circumcision party, they say they're from James back in Jerusalem and whether they really were or not, we're not told. One thing's clear. Peter is afraid of them. Peter, the guy who's in charge, is afraid of these guys. And fear might make you do a whole bunch of things in life, mightn't it? And you might wonder, what's he got to fear from you know, the, these guys who've just arrived from one of the other leaders? You know, maybe they're all big, scary, biker-type dudes like Stu Woods, right? And, and he's like, oh, man, they might hit me and uh, I'm going down. I don't think that's it, right? Uh, uh, I don't think that's what's going on. But maybe he's afraid of their intellect. Uh, you know, the kind of people that you, who run rings around you and make you feel dumb all the time. Maybe he's just kind of... Oh, I, I don't know what to say and how to argue. It's just easier to stop. Maybe, but I suspect that what he's really afraid of is offending the conservatives in Jerusalem and losing standing as the leader. That's something lots of leaders are afraid of in every organisation. Losing power, losing standing. But whatever it was, Peter's afraid of them. And in this moment of weakness... He cuts off fellowship with his Gentile brothers and sisters. He starts refusing to eat with anyone in the church who's not circumcised. But you know what happens when the leader changes his tune? Everyone else does as well. So when Peter broke fellowship one by one, so did all the other Jewish Christians in the church. And so verse 13, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy. 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, you might have noticed on the sign on the way in that we're called St Barnabas Church. (laughs) Barnabas was Paul's right-hand man on the first missionary journey. They were brothers in arms. He helped bring the gospel to places like Galatia. And Barnabas is held up in the Bible as a stellar example of a life that's totally transformed by the grace of God. Uh, He was a Jew himself from Cyprus uh, and he was a very well-off guy. Uh, He'd accepted Jerusalem while he was on holiday. Uh, He accepted Jesus while he was on holiday in Jerusalem. And, And when money was needed to feed Christian widows out of her heart, overflowing with grace and generosity, Barnabas sold off a large part of his property portfolio and donated all the money to the courts. He said, I don't need that land. These guys are starving. His name, Barnabas, if you translate it in English, it means son of encouragement. That's his name, right? You want to hang out with someone called the son of encouragement. Man, that's... That's a friendly guy, right? And, and all through the New Testament, he's the one who's always held up as the one trying to make peace with people when they're at war with each other. And he's willing to give others a second chance, like Mark, John Mark, who'd abandoned them and deserted, right? And he's like, oh, we've got to get him back. And, you know, come on, let's give him a second chance. So for Paul to say, even Barnabas was led astray, that's really saying something. Such was the fear and such was the impact of Peter's weakness in giving in to that fear that even the kindest and most generous of believers who'd been a missionary in the cause of Christ fell under the pressure. It's a devastating moment for Paul who it seems like is the only Jewish Christian left in Antioch not to succumb. Imagine what that would be like to be the only one. The temptation, the pressure he must have felt, everyone else has given in, his best mate's gone over. But what does he do? Verse 14, when I saw they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, that's Peter, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? He's not mucking around, is he? He calls it out for what it is and he singles out Peter and he does it very, very publicly. He calls it out for what it is. This is evil. It's hypocrisy of the greatest order. It's sin. He singles out Peter. Of all the people who've gone down... Peter's the one. He says, you're a gutless wonder. That's what you are. Imagine saying that to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, <laughs> in fact, the, the leaders of the Anglican Church in Africa have just said that this week to the Archbishop of Canterbury. You're a gutless wonder. And that's what he is. You've given in to fear and you've become a hypocrite. And he's picked on Peter because he should know better. As the one in authority, he's the one supposed to be guarding the truth. 
Peter was the first domino to fall. Peter's the one who needs to fix it up. Everyone else just copied him. And he does it publicly. I reckon that's important. I told him off in front of everyone. When the problem is that big and the church is split by lies, you can't just have a little private word on the side. You don't treat leaders who sin in the same way as followers who sin. The Bible's very, very clear on that. Leaders take on a greater responsibility and are held to a higher standard and when they fall, the rebuke has to be public. And so it's a full-on showdown. (laughs) You imagine this one guy standing up in the middle of the church service and yelling that out, you hypocrite. And Paul's dead right to do it and he's dead right about what's happening. And as he continued to stick it to Peter in public, he got right to the core of what the problem was. Why it matters so much about this this one little issue of circumcision or or, or about food laws or about feasts or about... uh, you know, the, the, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church or any of those things about who you eat with. And the crux of the matter is summed up in one big theological word that he uses here for the first time in Galatians. It's the word justification. It's one of those big terms the Bible uses which, which, which we've got to take to heart and we've got to understand what it's saying. It's, it's one of the most crucial and one of the most magnificent things about the gospel justification Uh, the word justification is is a legal term right it's from the world of judges and courts Uh, it it means to be declared innocent to it's, it's when the judge bangs the gavel and says not guilty then you've been justified now people these days they end time they use the words when they talk about justifying their own actions which which means explaining why they were right to do whatever it was right they're defending themselves right but that's justifying is not defending justification in the bible is to be declared not guilty but the question the bible raises is how can anyone ever be justified before god how can they be justified by god if you're going to stand before him on judgment day and be declared not guilty, how's that going to happen? The Judaizers were saying, we justify ourselves by keeping God's Old Testament rules. God's going to look at our performance, he's going to pull down our pants and have a look, and he'll work out if we've passed or not. But the problem with trying to justify yourself by religion is that it's patently obvious to everyone else that you're not innocent, you're guilty. It's certainly obvious to God and it should be obvious to us. We don't, we don't even live up to our own standards, do we? Let alone anyone else's, let alone God's. We, we break our word, we, we let people down, we say things that we wish we could take back but we can't, we, we've all done things we regret, we we hurt people, we're, we're sinners, even just looking at it at that level of our own standards. And, and they are so much lower than God's standards. And, and they fail to take into account the real problem that lies behind all those other failures, that by nature our hearts are the things that are leading us 
to live life without reference to God. That we don't thank him for, for everything he gives us every day. We, we don't love him as we ought. We don't glorify him as he deserves. Instead, what, we, what do we, we do? By, just, by nature, we push him away. We, we put barriers. How is having your foreskin removed going to justify you before God when your heart and your life are like that? How is eating the right food with the right people at the right time of year going to justify you? God's not fooled by outward signs like that. It's a hopeless endeavour. It'll never work. It'll never work. So how can we be justified before God? Well, there is a way. It's God's way. It's in verse 15. This is where he's explaining, right? This is, this is if you take nothing else, verse 15 and 16. We are Jews by birth. Paul's still talking to Peter, yelling at him in front of everyone. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, that's the Old Testament law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves are believed in Christ Jesus. This is so we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no human will be justified. He uses the word justified over and over again. How can you be justified before God if not by religion and works? What's the alternate way that God says is possible? See it there? Mark it. Lock it in your brain. We're justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. You get declared not guilty by God by trusting his son. That's what faith is. It's trusting him. It's relying on him. It's depending on him. When Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing was dying for your sin so that you don't have to if you'll trust him. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. All you can do is trust him. And when you do that, God declares... You are not guilty, innocent, even though you are guilty. Right? He declares you not guilty because Christ has taken it all for you. God forgives you. He cleanses you. He makes it so that when he looks at you, he's looking at Jesus instead. That's how you get justified before God, by faith and by faith alone. And it's such a relief, isn't it? Right? The, the other woman who was reading out the text, she's like, Easter's, you know, Passover, it's not meant to be this burden that's going to shackle you and make you think you've let God down because you haven't done it right. It's, it's freedom because Christ has been raised from the tomb, right? I know I'm going to meet my deceased daughter again one day, right, in glory because Jesus has got the victory. He's got it all. And to try to add things to what Jesus has done is to deny it completely. You can't add one thing to it, right? it. That's adding a burden that cannot be borne. That's what the Judaizers had done when they held up the Old Testament laws about circumcision and food and they were nullifying the gospel. That's why it would be to destroy the gospel to go along with them. And Paul stood up and he called it out. That's what the Roman Catholic Church had done in the Middle Ages. But instead of the Old Testament law, it was all about religious rituals and financial contributions that you could make to pay off your sins so you could justify yourself. 
but they missed the point and lost the gospel. It's what the cults all teach. You earn your way to God's good graces by joining their group, by following their rules, by following that leader. You justify yourself by, when you do that. And all of them lead to terrible slavery and terrible damage. Right? Just listen to cult, and any of the cultish episodes, you'll hear it. And all, you know, bad theology always hurts people. And it's something we need to guard against in our hearts because it's so tempting to want to think that somehow we can impress God and earn our own way when all we can really do is trust Jesus Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice for us. That's how we can be justified by faith alone in his Son. Don't ever let anyone lead you astray from that. Cling to the gospel. As Martin Luther would go on to say, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we pray please that you would help us to guard your gospel in our own hearts. Help us not to be led astray in our church. We pray please for faithful teaching uh, we pray that you'll help us to recognise when things have slipped in that shouldn't be there. And we pray, please, that you would help us to stand up when it counts in our community with our neighbours who've been led astray into false worship and idolatry. Father, we pray, please, that you would bring a spirit of change and revival and, and you would guard us in all of that. Help us to be people of courage Help us to love your truth and your ways. Help us to love your gospel with all of our hearts and love your son, the one who's given everything for us. Thank you for the freedom from the burdens that once held us. Thank you for the forgiveness that's ours. Thank you for justification, not by our own works, but by what you have done. Help us to cling to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.